Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 429, Turkey Science, with the Turkey Science Podcast, guys. And I am your co-host, and the guy who is still enjoying his wares. Ooh, that sounded nice. I am your co-host and the guy who's wearing down. <laughs> I'm enjoying wears and you're wearing down, so <laughs> tell me why. And it's like day 55 of duck season. Mm-hmm. Starting to starting to wear down. I've probably hunted 40 or so days, and it's just been a great season. Best year we've ever had, but... I am ready for that break month of February before turkey hunting starts. So it'll be nice to have a month gap. Oh, yeah. Well. Uh, I'm really glad, honestly, I've, I've always wished duck season went into February because the ducks really fly good then. But I'm like, now I'm like, man, I don't think I could take it. If I didn't have that month break, just do 60 days of duck hunting followed by 70 days of turkey hunting would be pretty tough. You know, you're a young man. I don't know why it's so hard on you. 
man, it, part of it is because a goal. And so most mornings during the week, I'm getting up at 3.30, hitting the gym, then going and shooting mallards in the face, you know, which is tough work, then going to work all day. So it's a pretty full day. I didn't know you were going to the gym and then going duck hunting. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll take back what I said about you being a pansy because you're a young man and you can't handle getting up early. <laughs> no, I can't handle getting up early. I'm just kind of getting up double early. <laughs> but, it, yeah. you know, it's kind of weird. I've noticed if I work out before I duck hunt, I don't, people think I'm crazy saying this. I have more energy throughout Absolutely. the day doing that. Than if I just got up and went duck hunting. I don't. I don't think that's crazy at all. I, I, that hour, extra hour of sleep is less energizing than that hour of exercise. I have no doubt about it. Yep. Yeah. Tell me what you're purring on right there. Is that another perfect hen by chance? That is another perfect hen. And With a modification, I got to play that call. Yeah. So we'll we'll discuss this stuff next week. I know I've. We've been teasing you guys with the Unicoi Custom Callmaker Show recap that we normally yeah. do. We've been teasing you guys with that for now. This will be week two, so we apologize. But we felt like the show's over. The Unicoi show's over. You know, you missed it. If you weren't there, you missed a lot. <laughs> Too bad. But you need to get it on your calendar for next year. There was a lot of great information shared. There was just phenomenal call, call makers there. And we're going to talk about it, but next week, because this week we, well, we turkey hunters, I can't even say turkey hunters, because there are some turkey hunters out there that are probably not as enthralled or maybe as immersed in just everything wild turkey like you and I and the people that listen to the show. So there's something that's rolled out for us turkey lovers, lovers of all things wild turkey that we want to make sure all of you guys know about. And, well, we're going to talk about a lot of it today. Yeah, yeah, we got a heck of a show with two awesome scientists, Dr. Will Goolsby and Dr. Marcus Lashley, and their new podcast that's coming out, or by the time you hear this... It's out, baby. It's out. The yeah. first couple of episodes, I've already listened to one, the Tennessee, the Tennessee biologist one, and it was fascinating, so... Y'all are going to enjoy it. So we, we spent a lot of time talking to them about their new podcast, why they want to do it, you know, what to expect. And then towards the end, we actually had a lot of trapping discussion, I would say, for, for a good portion. But yeah, it's a good one. I, I'm, I'm excited about this podcast. I've listened to one episode already, and it, it's fantastic. So you want to hop in here and talk to Goolsby and Lashley? I, I have a question for you, but I think I'll wait until we get back from the interview with them. All right. We'll see you guys on the other side, and I'll answer Andy's question. Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are glad to tell you we have on the phone with us today two, not one, but two biologists. So we are fortunate enough to have Marcus Lashley and Will Goolsby with us today, and I just have a feeling that the main reason that we're having them on today, we're going to end up venturing off course a little bit and talking some habitat and some 
biology and that for the wild turkey but we wanted to get them on today because they've got a new podcast rolling out here soon and we wanted to talk about that and so guys how are you today i'm doing great thanks for having us heck yeah yeah doing great yeah appreciate y'all having us on man uh, you know y'all are always welcome on this show so i know you're getting a new one cranked out and you guys have from what i hear have a lot of content already to post and and go so number one tell us a little bit about the new show and what the like name and all that kind of fun stuff (laughs) and when is it gonna launch yeah so i can jump in first we're so we're launching a podcast called wild turkey science and it really is meant to be complementary to the type of content like what you guys are doing but Mm -hmm. will and i have both been in the conversations you know uh, whether they're online or in person you know at different events and all that about wild turkeys and the concern over decline in some places and will and i both thought that we could play a role in trying to get information out from the science community to people to try to you know, complement the other types of information that is getting out. And and uh, we were lucky enough uh, when we started kicking around the idea that uh, it was good timing. And, and uh, we talked to Turkeys for Tomorrow about it, and they really liked the concept. And, and uh, Will had been working with them really closely for a while and kind yeah. of mentioned it but the timing was just right and you know, they they uh stepped up and and wanted to help help us put it together so that that's what it's about it's it's uh two scientists that are also hunters uh, that that are trying to deliver the science on wild turkey to everybody that's awesome is it going to be weekly you know seasonally is it going to be annual how how often can we expect an episode and when will the first one be available yeah so our plan is to release new episodes weekly and that first episode will be it's just the introductory episode will be available on the 22nd which is you know i don't know when when this is going to air but probably i, I would guess next week so by the yeah. time this airs, it's probably going to be out. Awesome. So the intro episode drops on the 22nd. And then on the 23rd, we're going to put up our first three episodes discussing season dates and the role that that plays in turkey population dynamics. We brought on, you know, three other experts in the field that have, you know, directly been involved with research pertaining to season date effects on wild turkeys. And we're going to put those first three out at, out, out at once so everybody can kind of digest those cohesively and then the next week Marcus and I will drop our kind of synthesis episode where Mm -hmm. he and I just kind of go back and forth and and talk about some of the uncertainties surrounding what we know and what we don't know and really that was kind of one of the motivating factors at least for me for for wanting to get involved with this it was initially Marcus's idea but some of these controversial topics around turkeys and what's affecting their populations are just very complicated and because of their level of complexity you know sometimes it takes multiple episodes to really get down to the level of detail and nuance that we have to to try to kind of understand what's going on and and what we do know and what we don't yeah yeah i think that's a good point will and just to add to it you know we we have several scientists that are working on various uh, 
parts of, of that issue and, and a whole bunch of other topics with, with turkeys. And right now we're in a special time where there, there are projects going on all over the place. Mm-hmm. But uh, my guess is most people, you know, in many of those places don't even know that there's something going on in their state. Yeah. You know, and, and if they do, they're not getting real time updates on it or, or near real time updates. So the, the other thing about it and another special part of that is a lot of these issues are really complex and there's a lot of uncertainty in the data or missing data. But there's also disagreement or alternative hypotheses or however you want to put it among scientists and i think that's one valuable thing that we can bring with this is you know we can get these people on and let them tell us you know their point of view and what data you know they're using to to form that point of view it could be that uh you know they may have a different point of view from another scientist because of something different happening in their their populations they're studying versus elsewhere you know there's just different challenges for turkeys in different places or or it could be that we don't have enough data you know or we're interpreting the data differently and and we both felt you know that the the data and and these points of view are you know they're kind of delivered to people in a scattered form right now and and we really thought it would be nice to try to become a hub for people to to get that information and and you know, have us also trying to help digest it and interpret it and, you know, be as balanced and, and transparent about that as we can be as scientists. So I think uh, hopefully that will provide a really clear and complementary role in this discussion that, that could help, you know, landowners that, that are interested in managing turkeys on their land or if you're just a hunter or uh, also, you know, agency professionals that are that are making decisions that are affecting all yeah. this and the resource. Yeah. Did Did y'all have anybody from Tennessee? I know we just completed a study on season date timing. Was anybody on these shows that you're talking about from Tennessee? Yeah, actually, our our first episode is with Dr. Craig Harper from the University yeah. of Tennessee, and he was one of the principal investigators on that study, and and uh, we went through. I, I mean, we covered a ton of ground, uh, but he went through uh, updating us on the status of that of their ongoing study, and I think there is actually planned to continue with the study on. So, yeah, yeah we we've covered Tennessee, uh, Mississippi, and uh, they they have a similar type of study. So we've talked to one of the the biologists there, and then uh, also got more of an overview across the range from uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain who's uh, worked on a lot of the, the more regional data sets. Cool. That should be very interesting because the data I've seen out of Tennessee seemed like was not a large effect had from the two-week delay in those counties, but I'll be tuning into that episode for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that'll drop on uh, first thing Monday morning yeah, on the Excellent. 23rd. So, But that, that episode for me, it, it just, you know, I think that was the first one on this topic that we covered. Uh, Will, if I'm, rec- I can't remember yeah. which one we recorded in, but when I saw that and heard him, it, it definitely resonated with me because the Tennessee study is very well designed and it's been long term, and they have a huge sample size, and yeah, you know, it's just, it's a really great study from lots of points of view, not just the season days. Yeah, I don't know how they could have designed it any better in my mind. I mean, I don't know what you do different. <laughs> For an apples to apples comparison. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you know, one of the things Marcus was mentioning is trying to make people aware of the research that's going on and, you know, their parts of the world, because that's what everybody wants to know. Um, or maybe, you know, they're just not even aware that anything's going on there. And, you know, so far, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, Marcus, we've had folks on from Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. And nice. just yeah, in our have, first batch episode, yeah. And then, of course, right. Will is representing Alabama uh, with a lot of the turkey research, and I am for Florida. So right. nice. Yeah, so we've we've covered a lot of the states in the southeast already. Yeah. But you know, thinking about it more broadly, and the work that we have still to do, and the interviews that we still have to do as part of that, we were we were counting the other day, and we were just off the top of our heads. I think wasn't it twenty something states that we came up with, Marcus, that are currently conducting turkey research. Yeah, that that sounds right. It, it's it's quite a few, and we have people, you know, either lined up or or in mind that that you know to target all of those places. Like you know, what's going on in North Carolina? What's going on in Missouri? What's going on in Nebraska? You know, all these places have really awesome work going on. Yeah, yeah. that was that was a question I was going to ask you guys. Is you know how many studies are are going on currently? Because it seems like and you know obviously we all on this show or on this call can agree and everyone listens to the show can agree the more information we can gather about the bird generally the better which means the more studies that are going on generally the better if they're done the right way but Mm -hmm. what does it what does that look like out west are there some states that are doing some studies out there as well that have peaked the interest of you guys? Yeah, so I, I know I know of several in the Midwest that are going on. I'm not as familiar with the the you know far western studies. I know that there are some projects related to Goulds going on, and um, I think Marcus didn't Brett Collier even mention that he might be involved in that work. I think he's, yeah, he's he, done some work same, with Goulds. Seems like he he said something along those lines, but uh, yeah, there's there are definitely a couple of studies on Rios. That are ongoing. We had one mm-hmm. of the scientists on already. Uh, he just initiated a second part of their project. He, he, we haven't discussed it with him, but he's leading the over in the, the far west of Oklahoma, uh, where the Rios are. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's leading the Oklahoma part of that study, and then the part of it is in Texas. And I think uh, some of the guys at Texas A&M are, are leading that part of it. But uh, the other one that comes to mind is there, there's a project in South Dakota, I believe, uh, so upper Midwest. And I'm not sure if, if we have identified anything farther west than that. Yeah. yeah I'm just ex- I know they have that. They also have that one starting up in Nebraska, but that's really early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for what you said, kind of y'all being the hub for this because it's like when a state finishes a study, it's almost like they want to release it as secretively as possible. Like I swear, it's it's, it's like you <laughs> where can go we bury it? <laughs> some random website you've never heard of, and click at the very bottom left corner somewhere, and then all of a sudden you can get the document that's a hundred thousand pages long. And like, yeah. you know, I'm excited for y'all to be able to have a, somebody like Dr. Harper on who's just going to give us the, you know, cliff notes yeah. version of here's what we found. Right. 
yeah. here it is. And like that's yeah. that's exciting to me. That's a that's a great point. And that was definitely one of the one of the factors that went into our decision to try to, you know, put this together and to give people a little bit more, you know, background information and clarity on this. You know, for us as scientists, a, a lot of, you know, professors that, that are in wildlife, um, you know, the way that they're essentially rated in their job performance is based on their research productivity and their teaching, right? But there are also a subset of professors that have an extension appointment, which, you know, mm-hmm. rewards them also for trying to basically extend the results of those research out to the public. And Marcus is one of those, mm-hmm. you know, my appointment is a traditional research and teaching one. So so for, for people like me, you know, if I get contracted by a state agency to perform a research project, you know, what I'm thinking about is satisfying that funding agency's objectives and then publishing the research in academic journals and then probably presenting it at a few, you know, conference that's attended only by other scientists. So there's not necessarily an inherent reward system built in for a lot of us that just have these research and teaching appointments to get that information out there to the public. But, you know, Marcus does it for obvious reasons. He does get rewarded for that. And then, you know, for me, yeah. uh, I mean, he's passionate about it too. I don't, I don't well, want to I was, was going to say, that, you know, Marcus. formerly I was at Mississippi State and I was yeah. very much involved in this kind of programming and everything there. And I was in a role like you were there right. where I did not get rewarded for it. But one of the draws of coming to Florida for me was having that extension portion of it because sure. I was going to do it anyway because I'm passionate about it, just like you're doing now, Will. But it didn't make sense to me to spend a large portion of my time doing it without the university valuing that effort. And right. I think that's an important thing that people out there well, I'll just say, you know, scientists generally kind of have a bad reputation for communication skills. And I think some of that is warranted in many cases. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that, that Will and I both value getting information out to people so that you can use it and, and be knowledgeable about what you're doing. Just right. from a conservation standpoint, I, I want to do that because I think it's the role that we should be playing. And, you know, that's one thing that's really driven me to get involved in this as well is we have an opportunity to try to serve as that hub and get people information that's really good so that people can understand what we know, what we don't know. We're covering, you know, some of these topics we've done in-depth literature reviews, and we've got the last 50 years of publications on turkeys where we've gone through all of it try, on a topic trying to, you know, collect things that you know people have done over the years or or find holes in it like what do we not know about the topic why do we not have data on something Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know all those kinds of issues it's not readily evident for people especially on wild turkeys and and you know there are lots of reasons for that but you know one thing we've struggled with even is we're covering some science that we can't really just so inaccessible we can't even give you a link to it so we're trying to figure (laughs) out how to house it so that we can share it with people on social media to make it as transparent i mean it's just the way why? that it has why is that so long. why like i mean how many millions of dollars are these states pumping into a lot of these studies and then like, well well i think from the state agency standpoint a lot of that is accessible it, 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 in terms of you can get it it's just hard to find it yeah uh, but some of the other ways that research is disseminated like disseminated like through scientific publication 
for uh, wild turkeys, a lot of that information went into the wild turkey symposium. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's lots of publications like that. They're not indexed online the same way that other journals are, and uh, mm-hmm. makes them hard to to access. And then yeah. a lot of the time, you know, depending on how you publish and where, and what the funding model is for that that uh, publishing house, uh, sometimes they're behind a paywall. You know, there's all kinds of ways that uh, it hasn't been really accessible and. And we're trying to, at least for turkeys, help remedy that situation because I, I do think it's an, a, a problem. And, yeah. and uh, you know, there's a lot of great information out there on turkeys, and it's just hard, you know, to, to synthesize and, and sometimes even access. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like if I was a state that made a multi million dollar investment in a turkey study, I would be like proclaiming it from the roof rather than like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, we'll, I think we'll I, I put think a little there's link a lot on of the there's a lot of variability in how states go about that, but you know, there, there are some that do really well and there are others that could do better. And, you know, it's that, that's, that needs to be kept in mind. And, and uh, you know, the, the way that that's funded is different than, than the academic setting where, you know, especially for me with an extension appointment, it is my job to make, information accessible to people you know so yeah. uh, that that's not the job of most people in a state or federal agency even yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know th- I think this, one uh, important thing to consider too though is that a lot of you know these state agencies are staffed by folks that you know had a passion for the outdoors you know whether that be you know through hunting or some other non-consumptive consumptive outdoor activity and they went into this field because that's what they wanted to do they wanted to be out there on the land working with the critters and you know we don't as wildlife biologists coming up, you know, we don't get any real training in, in PR and dissemination of information and things like that. Um, so it's traditionally, I don't think been as high of a priority, but you see that changing a lot with state agencies now where they mm-hmm. are, you know, putting together these PR and marketing departments to try to, in, you know, better inform the public. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely see them gaining momentum in that, that arena for sure. What are some of the websites that you guys find a lot of those studies that have been done on? Are there some that come to mind off the top of the head that you could throw out for the in- listener who's interested to go out and see some of those, the results of some of those studies that have been published? Sure. I, well, Will, you, I know you have potentially a different set of things that you use a lot, but uh, for when, it, when I'm telling people to go find information, you know, and, and uh, where to search, the the best place for you to figure out what is out there uh, it may not necessarily be accessible when you find it but it, the best way to find that kind of stuff in my opinion is through google scholar mm-hmm. and you can search a key set of keywords so if you just type in google scholar uh, some people may not even know that is a thing but uh, google has a search engine that's specifically for scholarly uh, type publications and you can type in a set of keywords and query it in all kinds of different ways uh, but it will show you the information that's published on it in some cases that information will be it, it usually shows you when you do that if it's available in in some form that you can just download it right away mm-hmm. and that may be an open access journal, which means that the researchers paid the journal to make it open for people, or, or they may be on a different model where it's, it's pay to view. 
so that would be behind a paywall. Yeah. But so there's ways that you could access it that way. For us at the university, usually we have uh, our library system has worked out a deal with those that are that are uh, paywalled, where we have access to it, and the university has paid for our access to it. Uh, but there's also sites like ResearchGate, and a lot of, of people who are publishing work will have an account on there, and you could follow individuals uh, and and follow their work. And a lot of the times, that the stuff will be made open access uh, on that for you to just download the the research directly. And uh, if the work was published by with a federal employee on the author line, then it is automatically with some agencies, I'm not sure if it's all of them, uh, it's automatically made available for you to download for free, even if it was in one of the paywall journals. So uh, that that's the general way. Uh, now, we have a lot of search engines through our library that may not be as accessible to, to people that aren't affiliated with the university as well, but those are two good ways that people could find this kind of information. Okay. But of course, listening to the podcast is going to be the easiest. <laughs> right. Well, we're, yeah, we <laughs> I actually have uh, somebody in my lab who I'm basically tasking with every time we mention a research paper on that podcast. She is going and finding that, and we're going to try to make it accessible and even have a little summary with it. Awesome. To, to make it accessible on, on social media, or we haven't figured out the flow through on that yet but that's what we're planning to do because we're trying to make it as accessible and transparent as possible yeah i was just going to build off of what mark had said and and mentioned that um you know google scholar is great and then you know there's an increasing number of these articles that are published are published in open access journals so the general public can have that can have access to those um but they you know when we go to publish we have to choose you know what journal we want to go to and there's a variety of factors that that we weigh on um, in making that decision. But, you know, with an open access journal, you can have you know, up to a difference of $2,000 difference in publishing costs for us to go with an open access journal versus one that's, you know, behind a, a paywall or a subscription service. So that's a major hurdle uh, to getting more articles published in that format. But more, more and more, the recent research will be in those types of journals or available, like Marcus said, through ResearchGate. If it's not available for direct download through an author's page on ResearchGate, you can oftentimes message them and they'll send you a copy. Um, but where the real challenge lies is trying to dig back down into some of that foundational research. Um, and as Marcus already mentioned, a lot of that was published in the Wild Turkey Symposium. Uh, which is, you know, a meeting that occurs every five years between scientists. Um, and, you know, really, like I said, some of that foundational stuff was published in those. And they were, I don't I don't know that they've ever been fully digitized and made available to the public. Um, I have some digitized copies of them. But, I mean, there's certain papers. For example, there was one from the 80s um, that was some work done in Alabama that I was looking for for the longest time. And I eventually had to work with our librarian here at Auburn University to find a printed copy of that so that she could digitize it and get it back to me. So some of this stuff is really difficult to, to dig up. And, and as you mentioned, you know, like probably the easiest way to get to a lot of this information is to, is to listen to the podcast, because even if you can't access a lot of these papers, you know, they're full of jargon and terms that, and just, you know, deep metholo- methodological details that people don't really want to have to sift through. Really what they want is the message at the end of the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cameron, I'm going to let you talk now. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. So, <laughs> Will, you mentioned... I have my hand raised, guys. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> I Sorry, I didn't see it. <laughs> hey, four people on a call is, is no joke. It's yeah, tough, it's, isn't it? It's legit. I, I was texting Dr. Goolsby about coming on, and he mentioned y'all had just done a series on predator control and that you might want to expand on that a bit because Andy and I have talked about predator control several times on our podcast, and I'm very passionate about it. I've been doing a lot of it this year. So I don't know if y'all want to talk a little bit about kind of that series and maybe even go a little in-depth on that. Yeah, that series, speaking speaking personally, I don't know if I speak for Marcus, but that one turned into quite a journey because we thought, you know, we'll have an introductory episode trying to explain, you know, some basics of predator-prey dynamic. um, And then we'll, you know, dig a little deeper and start, you know, sharing results from a few studies that have been done in that arena and then just kind of, you know, tie that thing up with, with a nice bow. But we found after we started recording that it ended up being much more complicated than that. And part of the reason was we didn't record properly a couple times. <laughs> yeah. So we had, we had a little bit of technical difficulty. Yeah. In there yeah. Oh, yeah. So, that, that won't be so your good, last time. The good yeah. thing about it is that the final product ended up being well-practiced. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to start out by covering getting into that Predator episode series is, you know, people have really strong feelings one way or another. Not necessarily about whether or not Predators eat turkeys. I think that's pretty well established in, in uh, other than a few maybe flat earther types out there. Nobody's going to deny that <laughs> Predators are a significant source of mortality for wild turkeys. But, you know, where the where the debate really heats up is is whether or not there's anything that we can do about it and what you know, things like predator removal ultimately result in. And I think, you know, to the, to the uninformed, it's, it's so, in, and I think this is the reason there's a lot of misconception around it too. It's, it's so intuitive to just think, you know, I just caught that raccoon in a trap, shot it, threw it in the back of my truck. You know, no doubt that's, you know, X number of eggs saved this, this nesting season. But one of the things that we ended up spending a lot of time diving into is why that relationship doesn't necessarily hold true is like a a one-to-one linear relationship with every predator removed. You're saving, um, you know, one or more eggs off the landscape. And there's really a variety of reasons for that. And um, if you think about it at the most basic level, you know, these predators oftentimes have predators that, that kill them or they have other mortality sources. So their populations are evolved to handle some mortality and still, you know, remain viable on on the landscape. So they have, you know, adjustment mechanisms that they've, you know, developed through natural selection that they can account for some of that mortality. And, um, you know, some of that is, you know, compensatory reproduction or immigration of individuals from other areas. And there's all sorts of things that really complicate this matter. And we really, you know, kind of took a deep dive into that to help people understand that. And then, uh, Marcus, if you want to kind of take over from here, you know, we, we started going into the literature on, okay, we've established, we've laid all this out and now let's, you know, see what the literature actually says about the efficacy of predator control. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good segue, uh, for me, you know, this is, I said a few minutes ago, some of these topics, we really dove into literature and scoured it. And this is one of those topics that we did that. And we did that for turkeys. And then what ended up happening is we realized our literature base with turkeys on that topic, particularly the efficacy of trapping, is so weak. I was astounded. And and we covered what, what we could find in detail. 
But what we ended up doing is borrowing a lot of information from a lot of other species that are similar. And when you do that and you look across all these studies and all these different contexts, I think it was important that we did what Will just said and gave people some context for why trapping might not just automatically, you know, increase recruitment, not indicating that that's going to be the case with turkeys or not, but just kind of trying to give you ideas of why that might be in different contexts. And then when we broadened out and looked at the game bird literature just in general uh, with a bunch of species, even at that scale, there's a lot of uncertainty to the degree that we see it in some circumstances with some species, we see a, an effective response positive for our, you know the targeted species and whatever metric they're measuring so like nesting success or, or recruitment or whatever but we also have examples from studies on very similar species and contexts where trapping actually had a negative effect on our desired species and that was really interesting to kind of go through that that circumstance but we'll mention one mechanism that works with if you trap the, a predator that's actually suppressing the populations of a competing predator that's better at predating something like turkeys you could actually by trapping increase predation on your your target species uh, and there are some clear examples of that and then there was a bunch of literature where they they did experimental work and they didn't find anything. So like we're across the whole board. So we really tried to go through all of that and talk about it in the context of turkeys. And also, you know, another aspect of this that's very important is there are a lot of people out there that are using trapping in their management portfolio who anecdote, you know, their anecdote from their property is that they are making a big impact. And you can find tons of people in that category. And we didn't want to discount, you know, that at all. Like a ton of people that have a lot of turkeys that invest a lot of time and resources into trapping. And based on their observations on their properties, uh, you know, they feel like they're making a big impact positively. And uh, yeah. I think that's important to to keep in context, uh, but also we need to realize the, the weaknesses associated with those observations also. So we really tried to cover it from all aspects. And when, when Will said it was a journey, he kind of went a different way than I was, than what the journey was for me <laughs> when I was thinking, when he said that, yeah. one of the journey for me is I moved a lot on that topic multiple times, especially after we talked to some other scientists about it. And now we haven't recorded yet, but one of the scientists got in some dialogue off the air and asked us if he could come back to talk about it. That is probably going to move me again on my my viewpoint on the topic because it, it, I've never heard anybody talk about it and he has some really good data that he's coming forth with here soon uh, so we're going to have him back to talk about it and uh, you know I don't want to be too vague but <laughs> pretty that, vague. that's where we're at with it like <laughs> the, the data is you know the data is kind of all over the place and and I was kind of shocked at how little of it we have on Turkey specifically we have a lot of of studies showing that predation is occurring sometimes at high rates and often is the leading cause, at least based on uh, the study as they presented it. So we know that predators are important. The the controversy and, and lack of information really is on the efficacy of trapping and, and mm -hmm. understanding the context of when and when 
when it does and does not work and you know what you should expect as a landowner what scale you need to be operating at both temporally and spatially you know we we have very little data on all that from the turkey world which to me is popular of a management action you know that in terms of people discussing it as one of the options for you to manage turkeys i was kind of taken by the lack of information on it yeah what would be an example of killing one predator that releases another predator like coyotes so i guess in the southeast dig 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 deep on this one I, i forgot what one of them was with prairie chickens, I remember. Will, do you remember what predator it was? No, I don't remember the predator responsible. But, I mean, if we were, I guess to just use an illustration, that would probably be a pretty good one, Cameron, is, you know, a, mm-hmm. a predator species like a coyote that, um, you know, both is a, he's a, is a predator of turkey nest, but then also potentially is killing, you know, smaller predators that are, that are, that can specialize like in nest too. possums? Yeah. Yeah, and to be clear, we don't have we don't have evidence that you know doing that releases coons or possums, but you know logically that would be an example that you could use. Do they? I mean, yeah, so you, there's no study so showing imagine, like that. A if I was a coyote, the last thing I would try to eat on this earth would be a male boar raccoon. <laughs> not a possum maybe enough. i don't even know if they'd like to eat a possum but if they taste good or right. something but I mean, the, uh, yeah a boar raccoon would be like okay i'm i'm on my deathbed and if i don't eat this thing then i'm gonna die <laughs> then i'd probably try it but i mean those suckers are tough yeah well yeah i, I think will made a good point as well and, and certainly the your comments on the you know that uh that raccoon you don't want to mess with that with that sucker what the the from the scientific standpoint we don't have very good evidence from our system here in the southeast of that kind of interaction that's coming yeah. that's where we were borrowing from other species mm-hmm. and other systems and but but you could see a how that might work out yeah could be possible i guess yeah like the the coyote is not a good predator of nests generally we don't think of it as being that primary one mm-hmm. but if it comes across the nest it's probably gonna eat those eggs yeah right and whereas I, and something I, like a raccoon might be out there looking for them and it's really good at it and yeah. it might be doing it at a really high rate and if the coyote is in some way suppressing either through competition or predation or both the raccoon population then by removing coyotes you could see where you could increase predation on the nest by raccoons yeah so that's the kind uh, of interaction that that's been shown with a bunch of big uh big bigger predators uh yeah. in many systems like wolves or or uh mountain lions or you know things that are really big could affect those meso carnivores those smaller ones there's been some work with wolves and and coyotes suggesting that type of interaction even between them and one of the species that comes to mind, uh, I think it was with elk, but but I, I may not be uh, the right the right ungulate species, but I do remember the increase in wolf population actually decreased the predation on elk because coyote populations were suppressed and ate fewer of the the calves. So huh. those kinds of interactions happen out there. Yeah, and we just don't have enough information here to, you know, we haven't really been looking at that kind of thing. So, yeah, I've always heard coyotes are pretty deadly on like fox, but Mm -hmm. I I would be interested if you, I guess, put trackers on like possums, skunks, and coons to see what kills them. 
Because, I mean, something's bound to kill him other than old age, I would hope. But, yeah. And me. Oh, sure. Besides old age and me. <laughs> something's bound to kill him. But, but really, you know, really what this conversation speaks to is, is ecology, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, what a lot of us are guilty of, and including me, is so many times we think we make these, these tweaks, you know, whether it's through predator removal or, you know, increasing habitat quality all these things that we do out there as part of the management for this game species that we pursue. And, and when we look at them, we think, Oh, well, you know, I'm burning this area or I'm thinning the stand of timber because I want to increase understory vegetation to lead to increased nest success or, or brood survival. But we're changing so many things when we do those, you know, we're changing. It's an ecosystem. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we're, yeah. you know, we're not changing one thing at a time. We're changing dozens of things at a time. And understanding some of those interactions is um, is kind of what we try to do as ecologists, but it's very difficult, you know, to really try to quantify all that. Um, yeah. So Why that's kind of what you know, we, you know, we, I think where we landed with that discussion on, on predator control is, uh, yes, it can work, but there's a whole lot of complexities to it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. When do yeah, and, that, and that's where we really unpacked on a lot of those complexities, and some of them aren't even ecological. Some of them are just social, right? Mm-hmm. Between us, so yeah. But. Yeah. When do raccoons have their young? Is it June, like in the southeast, I guess. I am gonna. <laughs> I'm not a raccoon <laughs> biologist. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just I, curious but, as to when do they replace themselves. Yeah, I mean, I'm under the impression that it's like late winter, early spring. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was, oh, so they have their young pressure. before turkeys are hatched. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, if they, when they're nest raiding, they probably have some young, at, yeah. you know, in their den or, or their uh, nest. Okay. I was just curious about that. Yeah, and that, you know, the other complexity that comes into that situation is we have just as much evidence and sometimes better evidence that improving habitat actually is better or more consistently decreasing predation. So, and you think about that for a minute, why would that be? Well, when you manipulate habitat in a way that helps the hen hide her nest, mm-hmm. well, that decreases predation, you could see that pretty easily it also potentially increases her survival which is a lifetime of reproduction that is even more important than that individual nest but then also you know you have other things like okay if we improve brooding cover and we have in- higher insect production maybe the pulse grow a little bit faster and get to to you know flight quicker and there's some evidence that they might do that even a few days quicker uh, you know, now that decreases predation because that first two weeks of life is where the real bottleneck is uh, after they hatch. And, you know, then on top of that, there's some really good evidence show that showing the thermal environment is a huge limitation to survival. And you're influencing that at the same time. And then there's also evidence from raccoons specifically showing that if you do things that improve nesting and, and brooding cover, like uh, opening canopies and burning, for instance, uh, you basically create an island of space in the raccoon's home range that it won't use. Yeah. Uh, like they start avoiding it. And that's also, so you could see how that one activity could actually have, you know, all these direct and indirect effects on something like predation. It could be really consistent and effective. And, you know, I, I, I think that warrants us having a lot of discussion 
you know, about that. And uh, to add to that complexity and some of the literature where we have really good demonstration that you can gain from predator trapping, I'm, I'm thinking about the quail literature now. Yeah. Uh, they, they show that that is dependent on you having very high quality habitat intact. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, the trapping effect only is after the habitat is intact. If you don't have high habitat quality, you don't have quail. Doesn't matter if they're predators or not. Yeah. So you know that that that's the kind of stuff we really get in detail about and try to unpack for people because a lot of you know you probably hear pieces of that conversation a lot, but you know uh, we're we're just trying to put it all together so that you can really wrap your head around why we might even argue over something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one thing I get from the predator point of view is people don't understand why there's multiple sides of that argument you know is there and there's some frustration just with that itself yeah and you know you know cameron and andy they take away our biologist degrees if we didn't put habitat over predator control right that's like (laughs) every biologist ever but i mean you could take it back in the annual cycle of a turkey even further than marcus did and think about you know if you've got quality habitat that hen is coming out of winter in better body condition that may increase her clutch size You know, that may increase her ability to stay on the nest when she's incubating for longer. It may improve her ability to chase off a coon or a possum that tries to come up to her nest. So there's so many just trickle-down effects of habitat that can benefit populations. But, you know, we don't really have numbers on what predator control adds to that. We kind of have to guess, but it probably adds on a certain percentage beyond what just habitat can do. But like I said... Mm -hmm. We don't really have those numbers and, and really in our in our predator control conversation as part of that episode, um, there were only two primary studies that we really discussed where they took a, a decent initial stab at looking at the effects of, of that control activity on turkey nest success and pulp per hen ratios. Um, and one was done, I think it was, were they in the 70s or I think they were 80s, Marcus, right? Alabama. Yeah, I think it yeah. They were born, I think they were published in 1980, weren't they? Yeah, so they, they were done in the 70s. Yep, the one in Alabama, um, and then there was also one in Florida. Yep. And nice. both both of those studies incorporated the use of poison. Yeah. So right off the bat, you know, how well does that compare to us using, for example, dog-proof and coil spring traps? Yeah. You know, we're, we're already not comparing apples to oranges, so it's, it's tough to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. And even when we go back to those, because of the limitations that they had at the time, I mean, that some of the things about the study designs are pretty questionable. Yeah. Outside of, you know, the treatment isn't even legal. Evaluating uh, <laughs> the rigor of the study, and there's definitely some problems even with those two. But how could that be for a topic like that, that we would have two? You know what I mean? Like what we've been studying turkeys for 50 years and it, and that's always been a really popular technique for, from a management standpoint. Why would we not have more information? Mm-hmm. Well, if there's any predators listening to this show, I still would not come near my property because you will be killed on entry. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, I think predator trapping is fun. It's a great way to get engaged oh, it's awesome. outdoors. And, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people really enjoy it and, Will and I think we're, I don't want to speak directly for Will, but, you know, one of the things for me is I just want to know what to tell people because I get asked, should I do it or not? And I'm trying to give you a straight answer. And now I don't have enough data to stand on it 
I have, you know, a little bit of data unless I borrow it. And then it's not that much more, even if you borrow it across all species, it's still not very much. And then mm-hmm. uh, a lot of anecdotes from landowners that swear up and down that, yeah, they're, they're you know, uh, really benefiting their turkeys. So that's what we're trying to, you know, advise people based on that, that information. So, yeah. you know, that, that's really where I'm at. I just want the data to be able to tell you what, you know, based on data, what, what, uh, what your options are. Am I wrong in saying after listening to you two guys talk about this and, and seeing the information that I've seen online and on and on and on, but do you think I'm wrong in saying that studying predator control predator management and the the possible benefits or detriments it would have on the wild turkey population is next to impossible because of all of the different dynamics you could take a thousand acres and do a study you know let's say a thousand acres in central alabama and you do a study and it's got select cut pine plantation that's 25 years old the existing pines are 25 years old it's got you know good understory uh, you know a whole completely different ecosystem and different dynamic and you could go to a neighboring property of a thousand acres that's all mixed hardwood and pine that hasn't been cut in you know 60 or 70 years and you're going to have a different ecosystem there and what essentially I think what I'm hearing you guys say is that's going to have completely different results because of the circumstances you know maybe that property that has been select cut has fewer raccoons on it than that old the older growth you know pine and hardwood mix you know what I mean that's got to be next to impossible to study and come up with some sort of a general conclusion that everyone can look uh, everyone being all the scientists could look at and agree with yeah yeah absolutely and you know when you when you start even thinking about changing the size of the property that adds additional complexity you know what happens if i do that like in your example andy on a thousand acres versus on a hundred acres right or you know what if that thousand acres is surrounded by a landscape where there's no other predator control versus one where it's surrounded by a landscape where there's significant predator control. So, you know, these are decisions that we have to make when we design research projects because we're trying to control for as much of that variation as possible. And so oftentimes we look for sites that we think represent, you know, the, the I guess, uh, the average or, you know, what, you know, the, the most common scenario where that practice is likely to be implemented so that it's as applicable as possible to to as many places as possible but you know it would be really difficult to get to that question it's not impossible i would say that you know anything is possible not anything but almost anything is possible with enough money but we would just have to we would just have to replicate you know to to really get at this question we would have to replicate um across you know a number of really large sites and we would have to have you know very intensive predator control and that would have to be paired with intensive turkey population monitoring. And the bill just keeps going upwards mm. and upwards from there. And then if you think about it, back to your example again, Andy, if we wanted to have that data for hardwood-dominated landscapes versus upland pine-dominated landscapes, then those are, two, those are almost like two different studies yeah. where you have to double your number of replicates to address each of those two scenarios. So it just gets really expensive and logistically difficult really fast. 
Yeah. yeah, and the other thing is, you, you know, we've talked already with a bunch of people about population cycles and dynamics of turkeys yeah. and your minimum talking about many years that that study has to go on to really isolate the treatment from environmental variation. And, and to add, I think I just wanted to reiterate one thing that you guys were just discussing that's really important is we have to have replication at a level, you know, that, that it's withstands scientific scrutiny. And that is exceedingly difficult to accomplish for an issue like that. You know, where do you, where do you do that study at a scale large enough that you can affect, you know, uh, the population of predators. Also, Will and I talked a lot about the study design on how that would have to be designed. And, you know, really what you need in that circumstance is to have two areas that are very, you know, as similar as you can, you can make them. And that would be a pair. And you need to track what's going on in both of those populations, not just with the turkeys, but also the predators. And then one of them randomly would get a, a treatment of, you know, in this case, predator control. And then you continue to track things into the future after that. And then you need that replicated eight or 10 times, probably across many states, uh, you know, if we really wanted to robustly address that issue so that it was, you know, could withstand scrutiny uh, that, you know, that uh, that science would throw at it. So yeah, it's a really difficult issue, no doubt. But that the thing for me is it's also a very, very important one. And there are a lot of people that want that information. So I, I agree with Will. I don't think it's impossible, but it definitely is a, a big challenge. And that's probably why we don't have better data on it. Yeah. The, it seems to me that the simple answer to the question of should I be trapping predators on my property to try to increase my turkey population, it seems to me like the simple answer for me when i get asked that or you guys if you get asked that say well the science is not definitive go try it go do it and whatever your you see your results being that's what your answer is you know i mean and you hate to give Mm -hmm. an answer like that but that seems like that's the only true answer go do it yeah i would i would just add one caveat and and say as long as you know, you're doing everything that, that you, you can, you know, within what, you know, within reason to try to improve your habitat for turkeys first, you know, I I I would always hate for, you know, predator control because there is so much uncertainty to divert any resources from habitat work. Right. Um, Like we were talking before we came on here, like, like Cameron, I know that you're doing some intensive predator control, but it also sounds like you're doing excellent habitat management work along with that or before that. Yeah, um, do as much as so we can, that, but you know, there's only right. an extent you can do <laughs> habitat sure. per so, year. So in that, so in that scenario, I would definitely fully support it. But the other thing that I would caution that person against, and Marcus just brought this up, is turkey populations we know fluctuate up and down significantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got several states across the southeast being one of them reporting a really, a really good patch this year. And let's just say that you were a landowner last year that started implementing predator control for the first time. And you're seeing three times as many pulps, you know, through the late yeah. summer period of 2022. You know, you would think that that's because of your predator control efforts, but it may not have had anything to do with that. True. And so mm-hmm. that 
that's the kind of thing that we're talking about when we try to prove this experimentally. It takes a lot of time because we have to we have to go through enough of those cycles to see what the actual averages are looking looking like over that time period. And you need a true control pair. Sure, sure. And you also yeah. need to know that they are actually comparable to begin with, which is why you know, you'd want to track them for a while and you have to track them long enough to figure out those cycles and everything to say that they are truly comparable or if they're not, why they aren't, and then implement the treatment. And then you got to do it for a whole other suite of years to mm-hmm. so that you can isolate your treatment from all this other stuff that's going on. I mean, uh, when we talked to, to, I think it was Adam Butler from Mississippi, you know, we were talking about even a population of turkeys. It, it's so variable from year to year even if the population was doing awesome and it was growing, you could still over a 10 year period have a difference of 50% in the number of turkeys just in fluctuation from year to year, even if it was, you know, uh, doing really well, like that's hard to, mm-hmm. that's hard to tease out your management from the effects of just, you know, mother nature. Yeah. So I guess my, uh, my approach I'm a very simple, feeble-minded man. I do as much as I can habitat-wise, but coons eat turkey eggs, coyotes eat turkeys, and I want to eat turkey, so I'm going to kill the things I can that also like to eat turkeys. So it's just a competition yeah. to me. If the coon eats the egg before well, but, I get a chance at him, I'm not going to get to call him up and shoot him in the, in the face in the spring. So Yeah, well, I, I'm glad that you're you're trying to make more turkeys. So That's it. You know, that, that's that's the big step right there. I think, you know, I'm happy yeah. when people are making that. And, and like we said, there, there are countless landowners or, or, you know, uh, users will say turkey hunters that are, they're swear up and down the predator trapping is, is working. And, uh, I, I'm definitely in that boat with you. If, if, uh, you know, you want to do that and you can, accomplish that in addition mm-hmm. to the habitat work then be my guest like yeah because you know. i mean you can't like burning there's only certain days of the year you can burn like it, it's not like every sure. day of the year i can just go burn and sure. you know if i've already done everything i can and i got a week it's raining or whatever there's no way i'm burning something or i've already burned everything mm-hmm. i feel safe in saying i'm not gonna hurt turkey populations by removing meso mammals y'all did say it's possible uh, i guess with removing larger ones yeah. but well i'd there's... say that's that's probably the case based on okay. uh, all of the information that we've had you're probably not going to hurt anything uh, unless, unless you said it's it, taking like away said... from something that's more effective you know mm-hmm. like habitat work but yeah yeah, we, we just wanted to be to fully give awesome. that discussion as, as much objectivity and perspective as we could. Uh, so we definitely did uh, cover the scenarios where it could be a negative thing. But I, I think you're probably right. In, in the southeast, I'd say it's probably unlikely that you're going to hurt anything. Uh, yeah. it, it's more of a question of what what is how much good is it for you to expect? <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. What's the if any? How much good do you actually make? But like you yeah. said, it's fun anyway. So, and, you know, yeah. I, I I don't think anybody would really disagree in that, you know, it needs to be done in conjunction with habitat management. But I think, you know, when we see this a, a great deal in the Southeast, the vast majority of people who turkey hunt in the Southeast, their ability to implement habitat management is limited because so many of them mm-hmm. are not hunting their own property. They're hunting timber yeah. company land, yep. or, you know, land yeah, that's that that a individual owner who doesn't want to burn or, or 
you know, you're subject yeah. to whatever kind of timber management program is going on and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think that's a, a critical point. You know, there are a lot of people that want to do some good and their hands are tied. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing to, to consider in, in that same vein is a lot of times what those people do have control over from a habitat standpoint are fields mm-hmm. and, you know, making decisions that better balance deer versus turkey management in those fields. Or if you don't care about deer, then you could go more aggressive with managing them for turkeys. But, you know, one of the limitations and and several scientists have said this, and I'm, you know, right on the same bandwagon. The thing that we see limited across the landscape for turkey productivity most commonly is poult rearing cover. And that's where you could do a lot of good in those fields, even though it's a small Mm -hmm. portion of the landscape, you could still have a big impact on the production of turkeys through field management so that they're conducive to brooding in. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great point. Cause I think we've had somebody, I can't remember who, but it, it seemed like nesting habitat wasn't what we're really lacking. It, it's mostly mm-hmm. poult rearing habitat. Yes. I, I know when I came on one, whenever that was uh, back in the day, I definitely focused on that. Uh, mm-hmm. so, that's right but i hear you know i've heard uh mike chamberlain craig harper will goolsby uh you know there i think a lot of us are in agreement that that that's definitely a problem at least in the southern landscape yeah you know marcus when you were at the Al- the, the alabama nwtf field day mm-hmm. you showed a lot of slides about you know just to show what good polt habitat look like you know what to Mm -hmm. do with these fields and you know i mentioned to you that i that i feel like and think that a lot of you know because first of all we're doing an audio podcast you guys are sure are doing the same i believe with the with the new show and so we hear this you know pulp good pulp habitat looks like x you know fallow fields with this kind of weed that Mm -hmm. kind of weed this kind of overhead cover and blah 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 but we see so few pictures of that and yeah you know what your your uh, all of you guys what your research is showing you know that pole habitat needs to be needs to look like and i mentioned to you i said you know if, if if somebody built a website that just where you guys could come in and and you know or just even send pictures of hey this is you know our study of and here's what the habitat looked like on that piece of property that we did the study on for the pole mm-hmm. uh production and and pole habitat and that kind of thing you know that would be extremely helpful and you mentioned that there's some of that out there yeah well, well we Point so us I, to I definitely, that. well, I definitely on my Instagram page that I, I uh, manage myself, the Doctor Disturbance page, I have put some uh, some of exactly what you're saying on there. Uh, you know, where I've made posts, where showing you specifically what I'm talking about, and I agree with you. I think that, well, I know that uh, I talked to uh, you know a landowner about that issue and then they try to repeat it to me or they point at something in their 
landscape on their land that they are interpreting what I'm saying differently than what I'm trying to to show them. And and I don't have anywhere to show them what, you know, it doesn't exist in their, on their land so yes. that I can show them, no, this is what it looks like. And I think that you're right. So I've tried to do that. Uh, I, I think, Will, you've posted some stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know we have been really conscious in, in uh, our lab trying to film that kind of stuff and have been trying to develop some of that kind of content, and, you know, try to make it available. However, I think Mike Chamberlain said that he was had been filming some of his poultry rearing locations and that he was doing something like that and i I thought you were saying as well andy that uh you guys were even considering trying to develop some sort of resource like that so i I agree with you that that is something that is is needed for it for not just that one habitat component but just in general you know when how do you know if you need to make more of it if you don't know what it looks like and if, if you've never seen any of it, you know, how would you even know that? So uh, I think we're in that situation now in a lot of landscapes that, you know, I, I rarely see stuff that I would consider good, you know, or at least optimal brooding cover. You, you see broods with turkeys and they're obviously uh, making, new, you know, some new turkeys. That does not mean that they're optimizing that and that you can't make a big impact by improving it. Uh, but you need to have some context to be able to evaluate it, and and uh, it's hard to get that context when there's so much, so little of it, I guess, uh, across the landscape. Yeah, well, and you know, I'm just going to throw it out there. If there's a web developer listening to this episode that wants to come on out and <laughs> you know volunteer their services to build a website, and so we can, you know, Marcus and Will and any any of the other biologists out there can put some photos of what some of that habitat looks like on there you know even and this has been talked about a great deal and i'm sure someone's not heard it but you know even nesting habitat and mm-hmm. but that encompasses so many different things because it's not like a hen is looking for one certain thing when she's going to nest and so you know right. nesting in the middle of a 20 acre hayfield or they'll nest in the thickest garbage you can find in a a clear cut you know there (laughs) there's no rhyme or reason really for for any of that but you know i think just getting some some visuals on what those types of habitat look like for you know a lot of landowner landowners slash land managers would be huge and so if anybody's out there listening and they want to volunteer some of their time and and build something out like that then you know reach out to me and i'll get with will and marcus and we'll try to figure out some way to get some content put out there and i mean it if even if it's just as simple as images you know Mm -hmm. without too much without you guys going into too much detail and and spending a whole lot of time you know explaining you know a whole lot about it you know I know how difficult it is to build a website with all the content. The content's the hard part. Yeah. Well, not for me. The the, uh, building the website that that seems pretty challenging to me at this point. But (laughs) uh, I'm with you. Like, I I do. I spend a lot of my time at the university trying to develop that kind of content, and I 
I care a lot about turkeys and I know that's a limiting factor, especially with poultry and cover. And I'm happy to, to help out and contribute with that and try to, you know, uh, develop content, you know, because I, I think it would be really valuable. Man, this is, I'm, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to let you talk in just a second, Cameron. I'm, I was just going to say, this is having you two guys on the show today is really difficult for me if you look at my pile of things to do at work and it's midday (laughs) on a friday and i could keep both of you on the phone for another six or eight hours and just have you completely talked out but (laughs) you know so i'm i'm going to turn it over to cameron i think he's got something else to say or ask not really i guess the last question i was going to ask is did y'all mention where this podcast can be found? Will it be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, like all the all the usuals? Yeah, uh, we we are planning to make it available through all of the major platforms, and it will also uh, it, it may be a, a little bit delayed sometimes, but we're planning to have them on YouTube. I think Turkeys for Tomorrow wants to put it on their YouTube page, and we will have it on the the UF Deer Lab webpage as well. So if you prefer to listen through through that way. Uh, one advantage to those is we can pair the visual content and and uh, in some cases uh, we've already talked to some scientists and they were showing us you know data trends and and uh, treatment effects and all that sort of stuff so we wanted to pair you know that visual so that if you uh, if you couldn't quite make you know visualize what they were talking about when when you're listening to them we'll have that paired with it so basically uh, yeah wherever you currently are getting your podcast uh should be available there yeah marcus i i uh i don't know if you've checked on this yet but this morning i got up and i saw where uh charlotte had sent that link for the spotify page Mm -hmm. and i went in went on there and it's already live you can go on spotify and follow the podcast if you just type in wild turkey science in the search bar it'll come up on there and so i immediately went ahead and followed followed my own podcast (laughs) and and then and then well, I walked I, over to my wife's side of the room and picked up her phone and went on Spotify and followed it too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I mean you guys know this, but the audience may not. We want this thing to be successful, and we think it's a valuable resource, and we hope everybody agrees with that. And and this is all for turkeys, and I think we can all get behind that. Yeah. Uh, but we need it to be successful to to maintain interest from from the you know, turkeys for tomorrow, but also so that the algorithms play it favorably and put it in front of people, you know, all those things, uh, we need it, those things to, to, to do well. And that really comes down to people subscribing and sharing it and rating it and all those kinds of things. And, you know, we, uh, would really appreciate folks out there. If you really want to help us be successful, you know, help us share it, share it with your buddies and your, your family and, and rate the podcast and all those things that, you know, they may not be super intuitive right away, but they're super important for for yeah. us to launch this thing and, and it be successful and continue to be successful into the future. So, you know, we we really appreciate all the support and help from folks out there on that cool. front. Yeah. Once, once y'all get done giving five stars on the Turkey Hunter podcast, head over and make sure you give your review <laughs> of the Turkey Science podcast. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's so important, and I know you guys have been really successful, and, and you know, continuing to have that kind of input from the audience is, is really important, and uh, yeah. certainly going to be for us with this launch as well. Well, Will and Marcus, you know, don't feel bad. My wife and Cameron's wife, 
they follow the Turkey Hunter podcast, so that makes four <laughs> followers, counting me and Cameron. Yeah, so, and, the, and the fan. You forgot about him, so oh, we got yeah. five. Yeah, five. I forgot about him, the fan. So Yeah, well, yeah. we yeah we figured we'd have at least three or four listeners, so maybe we can share, <laughs> share well, the audience. Between the four of us, so you There's already four got right four. There. So. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, I... I yeah. absolutely would encourage everyone listening to support what Will and Marcus are doing. You know, I, I'll say this because, you know, Cameron and I host a podcast and it's no small feat putting a show together and it takes a great deal of time. We spend about eight hours a week doing an episode that's recording the content, mm. editing content, posting content, and you know, that's, uh, you're talking a full work day for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I work mm-hmm. 12, 14 hour work days, but for the average week, man, the week person, <laughs> that would be a, you know, a typical work day. I'm kidding around when I'm saying that, obviously, but I'm saying all that to say that it is a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of love that goes into doing a show like Will and Marcus are doing. And so Go out there and support these guys and what they're doing. And, I mean, look, if you've made it this far in this show, what, an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes of us talking (laughs) turkey science, that's what you're getting in their entire episodes and every single one of them. So you're going to love it. I already know. Well, we really appreciate that. We really appreciate you guys having us on and and allowing us a chance to talk about it. We're we're pretty excited. Yeah, I, I can't say that enough i'm i'm uh, right there with will super excited and so appreciative uh you know for the support from you guys and and honestly we, we've gotten so much support just from the the broader wild turkey community uh it, it's been really inspiring you know we, a lot of people really care about this and we're all getting behind it and and trying to do our part you know for the resource and i, I just you know, that resonates with me. And it makes yeah. me optimistic about, you know, figuring out some of these problems that we're facing right now and solutions to them, more importantly, um, because there is so much momentum right now for it. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Very awesome. good. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. We Thanks appreciate for having your time today. Yeah. Thank you all. All right. Let's talk soon. Goodbye. I'm dying to know what the question is. Is the Turkey Hunter podcast now your third favorite turkey hunting podcast that's out there? What's the second one? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Turkey Science Podcast would be either in one or two, if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I personally, I guess I don't, I don't count as a listener to our podcast, even though I listen to every episode live and also when editing. So I listen to every episode twice. It just yeah. doesn't actually count on Apple Podcasts because I'll be honest, I don't listen to many of them thrice yeah yeah uh, every now and then i will go relive a hunt through through one of our episodes I, I will do that every now and then well i am so sick of hearing myself talk <laughs> but yeah we have to deal with ourselves we for post 24 hours a day yeah i'm not gonna listen to myself talk anymore yeah i, I usually skip us talking and just get to the hunt audio. <laughs> yeah yeah well and yeah. i will go back and listen to interviews and we're fortunate enough to have the raw interview of course then you guys if we just played the raw interview without the intro and outro you would miss all this wonderful banter between yeah. me and cameron and it's worth the price of admission for you to hear that yeah oh yeah i mean that's got to be the best part of the episode why would you want to listen to the two 
turkey science doctor biologist when you got us seriously i mean that's a <laughs> valid question <laughs> yeah what, what good info could they present that we can't you know i know we can make stuff up just like they can <laughs> <laughs> but no uh, it is uh the one episode i've listened to so far i plan to hit i think they have three out at least as of last time i looked i listened to the one from tennessee about our studies we've been doing which i've referenced several times on this show and it was fantastic i i just love the concept of this podcast because i'm like i've wanted to call the lead biologist for this study like a thousand times to hear what's going on and i got to hear it you know yeah and i mean bottom line that i took from it is the two-week delay did nothing for nest success predators are absolutely wiping them out and you know we'll see what happens from here but yeah. that was that was the two main points i got from it maybe i'll get something different but well it I, I would encourage you guys to go give it a listen. You know, if you enjoy the episodes that Cameron and I have with people like Mike Chamberlain, Brett Collier, Marcus Lashley, yeah. Will Goolsby, that's what you're going to get on the Turkey Science Podcast. And so, you know, you're going to have to drop a show. I don't know, maybe Joe Rogan, maybe it's Meat Eater Podcast. I don't know what, but you're going to have to drop something and add them because I know you're not going to drop us. Well, I mean, that doesn't make any no. sense. It's a, we're a great compliment. The Turkey Science Podcast and the Turkey Hunter Podcast. It's the greatest compliment in the world. What more could you ask for in the podcast? Yeah, those, those only two you need. I'm just just being honest. Delete yeah. everything else. These are the only two you need. Yeah, heck yeah. It, it's good stuff, though, it for is. real. Go check it out. Yeah, and, and I enjoyed... great job, Turkeys, for tomorrow again on sponsoring something awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I, I enjoyed having those guys on the show. You know, it's always fun talking to them and picking their brains. And, you know, I like, look, we all love the science that's involved in what we think we need to do to improve the turkey population and turkey habitat. Yeah. But I also like the fact that when there's not a definitive answer to the question about, hey, does trapping help? Does trapping work to increase my turkey population? You get the answer of, go do it. Yeah, go try it. See if what happens. If you want to trap, go trap. Well, you listen yeah. to that one with the Tennessee biologist and tell me what you think, but he's very pro-trap. I will say that. Yeah. And I know Dr. Goolsby and, and Dr. Lashley are also pro-trapping it. It's just, as they said in our episode, you, you can't prove that it with numbers 100% works. And I don't, I, my personal opinion, I don't think that'll ever be proved. I, I think there's way, way too many variables because yeah. how can you prove that this property didn't get one extra inch of rainfall and that's what caused the pulse not to hatch? And you have no way of knowing that property A has 30,000 raccoons on it and property B mm-hmm. that they're running their, their, counter study on or you know whatever it is the other part of their yep. study their test has 10,000 raccoons on it that's it or and five i like what what lashley said you know we can't dismiss the fact that a lot of private landowners swear by it right and i think that should be a critical data point if enough people see the results in different years and throughout time which I've heard it from, I don't know how many private landowners who extensively trap, that should probably tell you something. Yeah. So, yeah. And I like to go trap, so. 
It's a lot Again, of fun. Like, uh, like I said on the show, if you're a predator listening to this show, I will find you and I will kill you. There is no biologist who hunts, whether they turkey hunt or they hunt any other critter who knows anything about trapping. There is no trapper. There is no woodsman who will tell you that if you become a good trapper, a better trapper, the best trapper, that that's going to help you be more successful when you're hunting in the woods because of all of the traits that you need to be good at trapping. So if you go out and you trap and you hone your skills trapping, you're just going to become a better hunter. Oh, yeah. And you'll just know the property better. And you'll, I mean, if you're out there trapping in March, you might hear some goblin. You might notice strut marks in the road. (laughs) I mean, you may be better prepared for season when it comes. Mm -hmm. In addition to all the skill sets, you're honing by being a woodsman out there. So awesome podcast. Yes, I got two more episodes to catch of it. But hopefully you guys enjoyed this preview episode. Go check it out. Go check out Turkeys for Tomorrow, who is the sponsor of this podcast. If you notice in the picture for the podcast, it says made possible by Turkeys for Tomorrow. So keep that in mind. All the membership dollars are going to good stuff. Yeah, very cool. Well, do you have a favor of the week or do you want me to throw one, come up with one and throw it out there? Mine was going to be, hey, if you go, why don't you go ahead Go like their podcast that we talked about. Throw a like on our podcast and leave a positive comment on both. Oh, man. That's solid. How, how about that? That's solid. You, you know, know what? That's why you get paid the big bucks to be the co-host. Oh, yeah. I mean, I my income, I think I've almost gotten $0 again this year, but it's been great. Yeah, well, <laughs> good name recognition. Think about what it's doing for your resume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'll really boost the resume, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. It makes your LinkedIn account look, your LinkedIn profile look really good. Yes, no doubt. Yeah. Well, good deal, deal, man. I I think that's going to be the favor of the week. Go leave a review for them. Leave a review on ours. Tell us, you know, that you like the show, hopefully. Do the same for them. Five-star reviews go a long way. We, We appreciate all the ones we've gotten. I do read a lot of them. Yeah, we sure do, no doubt. So... Let's wrap this thing up and call it a week. And yes, we will be back next week to talk about a little bit of Unicoi. Unicoi. And I've got a guest lined up in two weeks who is our most requested guest to come back. Can he do this? With that call? Probably. If he doesn't have that call, probably not. Sweet. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. 
See you next week.